Greetings and peace be upon you. The following is a conversation with Professor Paolo Ines, who is a professor in epidemiology at Imperial College London, and it was an honor for me to be able to speak with him. Can you tell us a bit about your research projects and explain the difference between exposomics and, for example, metabolomics and epigenomics? Yes, uh, well, exposomics is a general or even generic term which refers to the uh, use of omics uh, in, uh, to study the exposome. So what is the exposome? The exposome uh, uh, is a word that was introduced uh, many years ago, about 15 years ago, by Christopher Wilde, who was then the director of the International Agency for Research on Cancer. And uh, his uh, proposal was that uh, uh, we know that uh, most uh, uh, diseases, and particularly non-communicable diseases, uh, are due to uh, environmental causes, uh, not to heritable uh, causes. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, he noticed that uh, uh, much efforts and, and resources had been put into genomic research. So genomic research has been uh, important. Uh, it led to a lot of uh, nice discoveries, but uh, it had uh, almost uh, no impact uh, on public health. And so Christopher Wilde said, uh, well, since we know that most of diseases come from, from environmental exposures, we should uh, uh, study the exposome, that is, uh, exposures uh, from uh, conception onward uh, for the, throughout uh, uh, the life course. And uh, we should also consider all types of exposures. So, so he proposed uh, to investigate uh, chemical exposures, uh, physical exposures, uh, even social relationships. Uh, so he gave a definition of exposome, which was very broad, uh, and uh, encompasses, uh, uh, in fact, all exposures since conception. Then the idea has been uh, uh, developed and refined by people like Steve Rappaport or Martin Smith and others. And, and, and then a, a stream of research on the exposome started, uh, particularly in Europe, because the European Commission decided to fund some uh, exposome research. But there were some important projects that were uh, funded. One was Helix in, uh, in Barcelona. Uh, one was this uh, exposomics that I led. And uh, so the exposome is a very broad uh, term, uh, which uh, includes uh, all exposures. Exposomics, if you like, uh, is more uh, specific. It, it refers to the use of uh, omic technologies uh, to, to study the exposome. So it, 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 there is not much clarity about the use of such words, but I, I could say that uh, um, Omics refers to, to the investigation of uh, 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 many types of molecules uh, with uh, high throughput uh, technologies. So metabolomics is one of the omics. Uh, it is used within uh, exposome research, uh, for example, to identify uh, metabolic pathways that are involved in disease, uh, which is what uh, we have done for cardiovascular diseases, for asthma. Uh, and through uh, omics, you, you try to improve exposure assessment, uh, look at uh, internal exposure. You can uh, uh, investigate the pathways from exposure to outcomes uh, like diseases uh, and, and so on. So I, I hope I... Yeah. 
Right. So what of your findings has surprised you the most and what insights have you felt uh, are most important? Uh, yes. Well, I think that uh, one of the main uh, uh, contributions from uh, exposome research uh, is uh, uh, the understanding of the complexity of uh, the relationships between exposures and, uh, and diseases. So we were um, used uh, in the past to look at uh, simple relationships one-to-one, -one, one exposure, one disease. And this was typical of uh, infectious diseases. Even, even now, uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, causes uh, COVID-19. But outside uh, uh, <clears throat> infectious diseases, uh, the, the situation is, is quite different. But perhaps the most surprising uh, finding was came from uh, another um, European Commission-funded uh, um, network I led uh, called LifePath. It was a Horizon 2020 uh, project <clears throat> because we found that uh, exposures in uh, early life, uh, in uh, uh, childhood, uh, can have a, a, a huge impact uh, on uh, uh, diseases later on uh, in adult uh, life. Um, for example, just to mention an example, uh, a paper came out uh, recently in the International Journal of Epidemiology by <coughs> colleague, um, colleagues in France uh, within the, uh, the, the LifePath uh, consortium, uh, <coughs> the, the, the group led by uh, Thierry and uh, uh, Michel Kelly Irvin, and, and they show that uh, the paper shows that, that uh, uh, exposure in infancy um, to um, little education, for example, and, and then uh, in other papers we looked at uh, adverse uh, um, events uh, in, uh, in infancy, uh, so-called ACEs, uh, adverse, adverse childhood events, uh, leads uh, to um, a, a risk of, of disease and, and mortality which is comparable to the effect of, of smoking in uh, uh, middle age and, and later on. So this is uh, early research showing, however, the, the impact of early exposures uh, in childhood uh, comparable to exposures in, in midlife. In other words, uh, one of the uh, um, results of exposome research has been uh, recently uh, showing the importance of uh, the whole life course, the fact that you may have a cumulative uh, um, impact of exposures, which means that uh, you, you can, uh, uh, for example, uh, invest uh, um, in uh, very much in, in childhood exposures, having big dividends, so to say, uh, later in life. Um, this has been shown also in another paper by LifePath, uh, by Kirimaki, which came out a few years ago um, in, in Lancet Public Health, uh, showing the same, that these uh, divergent uh, um, trajectories uh, uh, in low and high social groups, uh, starting in infancy uh, and leading to uh, quite different uh, risks of disease in middle age uh, or uh, in a later age. Um, so perhaps this is the uh, the type of results uh, I found more interesting for a public health uh, point of perspective, mm -hmm. and they um, 
coincide uh, with uh, theories uh, uh, by other people. For example, the, the great economist uh, Heckman, who uh, said exactly the same, that is, uh, if you invest uh, in childhood, uh, you will have uh, great dividends uh, later in life. Uh, he referred to education, uh, obviously, but education uh, comes together with uh, uh, lower exposure to adverse uh, childhood events uh, and, and, and so on. So perhaps to single out uh, this uh, uh, type of result with, which refers to uh, childhood uh, experience and the, the importance of childhood exposures. Right. Um, so you have, as you said, you've, you got uh, financial help from the European Commission and you have partly managed and participated in many international projects in cooperation with, as you said, the European Commission, but also, as I have understood, in part with the WHO. So what advice would you give to other researchers when it comes to gathering human resources for ambitious research projects? Well, um, obviously, uh, having access to, uh, to these grants uh, is, uh, is not easy. It is pretty complex because, uh, because of the nature itself of the uh, of the calls, and uh, you, you have to set up uh, uh, networks uh, of people. In the case of LifePad that I mentioned before, you have to uh, identify the best, uh, so to say, colleagues and, and uh, life to be successful. I mean, LifePad was uh, um, interesting because it was quite uh, multidisciplinary um, because the, the topic was uh, uh, social inequalities in health and, and so uh, we had on board uh, um, molecular biologists uh, because we did uh, uh, much molecular research uh, particularly epigenetics uh, and metabolomics but we also had social scientists and people who have been working on social inequalities for a long time like uh, Ion Mackenbach or Michael Marmot so uh, well Typically, in the career of, uh, of a young researcher, you start with uh, small grants and you build up uh, your own uh, path. Uh, and, and then at a certain point, you can uh, compete for large grants like those uh, funded by the European Commission, where you, you need to, to put together a network uh, uh, which uh, is likely to, uh, to be multidisciplinary. Uh, so, Yourself, if you want to coordinate such a network, uh, you, you have to know something about the different disciplines and be able to connect them. Uh, and, and perhaps uh, uh, the most important thing is uh, to find a, a, a <clears throat> catchy uh, idea um, or concept around which you build your, your network. For, for example, in, in life, but uh, the catchy idea was uh, um, the uh, embodiment, uh, which is a term uh, coined by Nancy Krieger many years ago. And, and the idea is that uh, uh, social inequalities uh, um, get under the skin. That is, they, they become embodied uh, uh, into, the, into your body. Uh, so they influence the molecules, for example. Right. In the case of, of the previous uh, network, uh, Exposomics, uh, the, the catchy idea was uh, meet in the middle, that is, you, you, find, you use uh, molecules uh, to find uh, <clears throat> pathways uh, uh, intermediate between exposure and disease. 
so that you can reinforce uh, causality, for example. Uh, you, 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 you increase uh, the likelihood that a certain association that has been found with uh, traditional methods is uh, in fact uh, causal because you find uh, a molecular connection between exposure and uh, and disease. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you deal with the legal aspects of data collection? Because you collect a lot of data and you access many data banks. How do you deal with that? Yes, well, uh, that's uh, one of the um, most uh, uh, difficult uh, issues because uh, this type of research is by definition multinational. So uh, in LifePath, for example, we have partners from, the, from all over Europe, plus the United States and Australia. Uh, but we do other research with, uh, for example, Bangladesh, Pakistan. So uh, we uh, usually stick to uh, GDPR, which is the uh, EU legislation about uh, uh, data management and, and data transfer and data confidentiality. Um, GDPR, uh, I would say, is complex, but it is very good. Uh, and and it, it, it is feasible, I mean, um, and uh, there are several um, summaries, uh, so to say, that help you in uh, understanding how in practice uh, it can be, uh, you, you can meet uh, the criteria of, of GDPR. So I would say that uh, the, the main uh, uh, features are, uh, first, uh, you, can, you have different choices uh, uh, in the management and transfer of data. In a way, the simplest uh, is to completely anonymize the data, de-identify them, that is to um, delete uh, any personal identifier. Uh, but this is not, uh, uh, not uh, always uh, uh, useful or feasible, because uh, when you use data, you, you want also to link uh, such data to other types of information. For example, you have data on uh, uh, from questionnaires uh, of people but you want to link uh, this uh, with uh, health data so you want to know whether those people died or they, they got the diseases so you want to link them with uh, cancer registry say so you cannot completely uh, delete uh, the the personal identifiers uh, so what uh, the gdpr suggests uh, is a pseudo anonymization which means that uh, you uh, recode the uh, the individuals. Um, you use a, a new a new coding system to transfer the data, and the key uh, for the linkage between the new code and the original identifiers is uh, uh, kept in one place by only one person in a safe way, uh, so that. Uh, uh, the uh, anonymity cannot be breached. Uh, so there are safety measures that can be put in place uh, uh, to work with uh, pseudo-anonymized data, which is what uh, uh, the vast majority of researchers do. And then this is about confidentiality and safety of, of data storage. Then there is an issue, of course, with uh, um, informed consent so any project need, needs uh, to go to a, uh, an ethics committee, mm. which uh, judges uh, uh, not uh, exactly the scientific quality. Usually the scientific quality is not uh, 
judged by the, the ethics committee, though sometimes uh, quality is relevant also from an ethical point of view. Uh, poor research uh, in principle should not be done, for example, because uh, it is a, a bad use of, of limited resources. So there is also an, an ethical aspect in the, uh, in the quality of data, but usually the ethics committees uh, uh, judge uh, the uh, potential um, ethical implications and breaching of ethical principles, um, <clears throat> like the autonomy of people, uh, um, release of uh, uh, sensitive information, or um, um, say inequality, uh, gender bias, uh, uh, race bias, uh, these kind of things. So obviously, a research that uh, aims to, to show that uh, this is just a, an example, uh, the IQ is different by races, uh, uh, raises uh, ethical concerns. Uh, mm. and, and well, not to talk about uh, um, experimental studies, where you even more interfere with people's autonomy, freedom, uh, or even uh, health. Uh, like in the administration of, of, of drugs, where you, you need to be very careful about the potential side effects. So basically, you have to know the uh, re regulations like GDPR and uh, use all the necessary steps, uh, uh, like uh, to put in place uh, um, <coughs> um, transfer agreements uh, between institutions uh, uh, and so on. It's not uh, easy. You need to have an office that uh, takes care of, of, this, of these issues. Right. So you touched on data linking. Um, so this is a question that I usually ask um, every of, uh, one of my guests. Do you think that we can derive a, a marker for well-being or righteousness by linking exposome and behavioral data? derive a marker for well-being, for example, by, by linking exposome and behavioral data. And in terms of, of behavioral data, we can maybe use, uh, you know, questionnaires or uh, process social media, natural language processing or econometrics or something like that. Um, well, you, you can use any kind of data for, for exposome. Uh, what you you have to consider is the quality. Now, uh, there is a lot of uh, discussion about the so-called big data. And uh, uh, many years ago, at least 10 years ago, there was a famous uh, um, editorial in Wired, which is a, a magazine, uh, an editorial by the, the director, uh, Anderson, uh, who, who said, uh, uh, we don't need uh, any more scientific method because now we have big data. That, that was uh, completely wrong. I, I disagree with that. Uh, obviously, we, we have a large amount of data coming from clinical records, uh, as you say, from newspapers, from uh, social media, uh, from uh, uh, Google, uh, whatever. And you, you can use this data and, and you, you can look them, uh, link them together uh, to do uh, behavioral research, epidemiological research, exposome research, but the problem is uh, quality. Uh, and uh, um, you still need uh, the uh, scientific method, the, the traditional scientific method. It's not a, a matter of uh, uh, putting together all this data and uh, 
using artificial intelligence and coming up with uh, an answer for two reasons. Uh, one is because artificial intelligence itself, uh, say machine learning, is uh, uh, based on algorithms that are written by people. Mm-hmm. So uh, there is a, there may be a, an inherent uh, bias uh, uh, coming from how the algorithms are written. Sure. The second reason is, is the quality of the data, uh, because we, with poor data, you, you will get poor answers. Just an example, uh, a few years ago, um, uh, there was a, a beauty contest. Uh, they asked uh, the computer uh, to assess uh, the candidates based on an algorithm. Mm-hmm. And it came out that uh, uh, those uh, who won were always uh, white women. And, and why? Because uh, obviously the algorithm had been written by, well, not, not really written, the, the computer had been uh, taught, um, uh, trained with uh, uh, certain uh, standards of beauty that uh, were biased towards uh, uh, white women. So it was impossible for, say, black women to, to win uh, based on the way the algorithm was written and uh, how the the computer was trained with uh, images so i think that you can use all sources of, of data and uh, uh, however it's uh, uh, you have to be careful and still use the scientific method in the sense of being aware of potential bias and, and confounding and whatever okay so moving on do you have you know how, how do you find the balance between thinking on new ideas uh, and new projects versus narrowing narrowing down your focus in order to execute a project? Yes, well, that's a very good question. Um, uh, Once again, it's not easy because uh, uh, I believe that uh, uh, good science in the past, at least, uh, was based on on great intuitions. Uh, Science has changed uh, uh, a lot, uh, as, as we know. And it's changing very rapidly. If we take the, the big scientists uh, of the past, I, uh, I'm a big admirer of Darwin, for example. They, according to, to current uh, standards, uh, they were incredibly slow because uh, it took, uh, I don't remember how many years, but uh, at least 20 years to, to Darwin to put in paper on paper uh, his ideas. So Darwin started with uh, uh, great ideas, uh, a lot of observations. Uh, he tried to catalog and uh, uh, organize uh, his uh, observations uh, according to his uh, theory. And there was a, a, an interplay between theory and observations in the course of time that led to his uh, great uh, discoveries and, and, and books and, and papers. Um, that, that was a way to to do research that led to incredibly uh, strong, powerful uh, theories like uh, the theory of evolution. And why is a, is a theory powerful? Because it, it leads itself to a stream of other uh, observations and uh, investigations. In, in fact, after Darwin, we had uh, Basically, the, the neo-Darwinism, that is uh, the theory of mutation and selection, uh, and then uh, genes were discovered and people found that uh, uh, 
uh, effect mutations occurred in genes and uh, there was selection uh, due to other forces. So um, Darwin's theory was important not only because it was elegant and it allowed to explain a lot of natural phenomena, but also because it was a heuristic, that is, it led to, the, um, to a proliferation of other theories and other observations later on. Now, science has changed incredibly since then. Now it is completely different. And now uh, it is more similar to, uh, to many other jobs. Uh, uh, for example, there is a lot of uh, um, job division uh, and specialization. So uh, everyone does uh, uh, their own uh, little piece of, of research, which uh, uh, is not uh, uh, leading to, um, say, serendipity or uh, clever uh, thinking. Um, well, perhaps uh, sometimes uh, the the leader of a group or or the head of a department uh, has uh, a, a, an overview, a general view of the research which is done, and then there are many different people doing their their little research in the laboratory. But yeah. uh, this is not necessarily uh, true because. Uh, um, the leaders themselves are uh, involved in uh, competition for money, in uh, uh, managerial uh, mm. tasks, uh, uh, and so on. So, where uh, good thoughts come from uh, is not obvious, uh, but it happens because, in fact, they, uh, still there are good uh, good ideas uh, coming up, and they they can come up uh, from. Uh, students uh, uh, and even from uh, from very young researchers yeah sometimes because they have the time to to think rather than being involved uh, uh, constantly in the management or uh, administrative uh, issues mm -hmm. so i saw an interview where you expressed a concern for new pandemics arising as a, con a consequence of our agricultural practices so where do you think that this problem has its root uh, for pandemics, no, the agricultural practices and you know the big problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, if you look at uh, the work done by the Stockholm Resilience Center, uh, well, IPCC as well, and and other um, organizations, institutions, or networks that deal with uh, the health of the planet, uh, mm -hmm. there are many uh, damages. Uh, um, uh, that affect the, the planet, um, which have uh, unpredictable uh, consequences. We are used to talk about the climate change, and uh, this year we will have a COP26, and we urgently need to, uh, to, to address climate change to avoid uh, something which might become irreversible. But in addition to climate change, there are several other uh, threats for the planet. One is biodiversity loss. Um, uh, uh, others are, uh, for example, the uh, pollution or, uh, degradation and pollution uh, concerning phosphorus and, and nitrogen. Uh, so all of these uh, um, changes, uh, which are very rapid, uh, uh, on one side uh, are uh, responsible for certain health effects. 
Um, on the other side, they come from uh, transformations uh, in different fields of the environment. One is agriculture. Uh, certainly, um, the, the spread of uh, um, animal farming, particularly, which means uh, deforestation, for example, in the Amazon, it means uh, increased release of methane and, and other greenhouse gases. Uh, um, so agriculture is one of the sectors uh, uh, which is in the spot because it, it is uh, responsible for different uh, uh, implications, including the spread of, of viruses um, and pandemics. Uh, why that? Because uh, um, on one side, uh, the, the animals which are bred in animal farms uh, are reservoirs for viruses. On the other side, uh, um, new animal farms uh, are, are built uh, in areas where deforest deforestation occurs uh, uh, or animal um, feed is uh, is also grown um, in uh, in areas uh, of deforestation so all that uh, increases the uh, contact between humans uh, and uh, viruses well wild species uh, uh, and therefore, uh, still unknown viruses, for example. This is the, the story uh, of uh, HIV in the past, uh, the story of uh, Ebola and, uh, and now coronaviruses. Right. Okay, so last question, and this may be a bit of a personal question, but is there any variable that you can pinpoint and say that you want to maximize in your life? Any variable uh, to maximize? Is a, yeah. Sorry, what? That you can that you can that you're prepared to or that you aim to maximize without any cap uh which when you say variable you mean to investigate or no any is there anything that you for example some people every everyone says that you know um or okay i can put it in this way instead how do you deal with epistemic and moral uncertainty in your life uh, um uh, epistemic uncertainty. Well, can you make an example? Epistemic uncertainty is uh, uh, all over our work. Yeah, and you know, you know. So basically, that you, you there's there you, you can't make deductions for every decision you have to make because you have to make many important decisions in your in your position as professor, and you can't deduce from first principles in every single case. So how do you deal with that? Do you, you don't have the time, I guess, to always, you know deduce from first principles. Uh, I see. Whether you mean uh, moral principles or scientific principles? Both in general. No, well, I think that uh, one should, shouldn't be uh, too quick uh, in, in their reasoning. I mean, uh, um, yes, I, I see what you mean, uh, particularly now with the pandemic, uh, you have to, to um, act quickly. Uh, this is more uh, with the politicians, I would say, rather than with the scientists. But this is uh, one of the conundrums of uh, our time, that is uh, uh, the transfer of, of knowledge into practice, uh, into decision, needs to be very quickly. And uh, very quick, um, which means that sometimes you have to give up with uh, principles. For example, a, 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 a too early transfer of uh, uh, knowledge into practice, um, which means that you can make uh, mistakes. Um, I don't think that uh, any mistake has been uh, done so far with uh, vaccines, uh, 
but uh, with the, the, the COVID vaccines, uh, the transfer uh, has been very, very quick, uh, fortunately. Uh, nothing was breached, uh, I want to be uh, very, very clear, uh, but it, it was probably the quickest transfer uh, of a vaccine in history. Um, and people were able not to, to violate uh, any principle, though uh, there was uh, some pressure to do that. Uh, people were a little uh, uh, um, uneasy with uh, uh, approval by agencies, uh, for example. Uh, uh, so there are situations uh, in one in which you you, you need to resist uh, to uh, uh, too quick de decisions, uh, and, and you need uh, to uh, reaffirm uh, uh, the fact that. Uh, uh, both the scientific and ethical principles have to um, to met. Mm. Um, well, and then now we have a lot of ethical questions arising uh, uh, from uh, the distribution of the vaccine, uh, where to start uh, with uh, uh, social groups. Uh, um, and, and once again, you have to be very careful because uh, um, you, even even uh, uh, clearer was the situation of, of triage in um, uh, emergency rooms uh, or uh, units uh, of uh, intensive care with COVID. When uh, the intensive care was overwhelmed and physicians had to, to make uh, what are called uh, dramatic choices, uh, that they had to choose uh, between patients. And uh, you know that there has been a a big discussion, at least in Italy, but I think everywhere. Uh, some people said, uh, based their judgment on, on age, saying mm -hmm. that uh, beyond a certain age, uh, we will uh, uh, not uh, submit people to int intensive care. Uh, we, we give uh, um, a priority to young people. Mm -hmm. uh, others have said, no, this is based on uh, the um, uh, life expectancy. Uh, so they, they tended to, to give priority to, to people in general good health rather than people with a, a, a very serious disease in addition to COVID. These are very uh, difficult uh, moral questions. Uh, and we should, we should be prepared to pandemics in the future, but we should also be prepared to answer these questions in advance and not at the very last moment when you you have uh, your patients there and you have to make uh, a quick decision because uh, uh, you, you may make the wrong decision. Mm. So in general, I, I, I believe very much uh, in open discussion and uh, uh, what is called a, a deliberative democracy that, that is uh, organizing focus groups uh, and uh, uh, identifying all the moral issues at, at stake uh, and uh, um, uh, having as I said, an open discussion about all of them and, and coming to a sort of agreement and even guidelines for, for physicians in the case of, in the case of uh, uh, triage or um, in, in the case of the distribution of the vaccine, uh, uh, guidelines for, for the government. Right. So deliberative democracy, that was a new term for me. Okay, so thank you very much for participating, Professor Vinicius. Thank you.